Hello. Welcome to another. <laughs> just setting the voice. Just setting the voice up there. You don't have to Jesus. leave that in. Welcome to another Moshtalgia, where we look back at a selected album which formed part of the soundtrack to our lives in our younger days, growing up on the east coast of Ireland. This time we take out our cans of hairspray, stick on some eyeliner and get sleazy with Motley Crue and Girls, Girls, Girls. Girls, Girls, Girls was to follow up to Theatre of Pain, which was released in 1985. Girls, Girls, Girls came out on May 15th, 1987 and sold over 4 million copies. It was recorded at a couple of studios, One on One Los Angeles, Conway in Hollywood and Rumbo in Los Angeles. The album reached number 14 on the UK album charts and number 2 on the US Billboard albums chart. It was produced by Tom Worman whose notable works included the crew's previous two albums, Shout at the Devil and Theatre of Pain. He had produced previously for bands including Blue Oyster Cult, Mother's Finest, Molly Hatchet, Twisted Sister, Striper, Kicks, LA Guns and Poison. The lineup of the band at this time, Vince Neil on lead vocals, Mick Mars on guitars and backing vocals, Nicky Seeks on bass and backing vocals, and Tommy Lee on drums, piano and backing vocals. In the course of research of our esteemed little podcast here, I read The Dirt. Did you read The Dirt? I just read I watched I, it on Netflix. You, yeah, you covered your eyeballs in dirt. I enjoyed it more than Bohemian Rhapsody, which came out at the same time. You couldn't look at Bohemian Rhapsody for the lure of the teeth. <laughs> I tell you, he could buy apples through a tennis racket. It was just too much of a happy story where this is proper rock and roll. Um, it, it would be no exaggeration to say we could have filled up a three-hour podcast with all of the shenanigans Motley Crue got up to. Yeah. But instead, I've compiled some selected facts. Oh, we're going straight into the facts. I wanted to tell you what Tommy Lee was saying in the dirt. Oh, We had a huge-ass jet, we had endless cash, and we could do whatever the fuck we wanted. <laughs> girls, girls, girls was the raddest time I ever had in my life, or at least I think it was, because nothing stands out but a blur of fucking insanity. We partied like clockwork, bro. You could check the clock in whatever time zone we were in and figure out exactly what kind of shit we were into. Go on, Tommy. <laughs> Good man, Tommy. Yeah, good thing. If you want me to add what Nikki Six says in the dirt, Girls, Girls, Girls could have been a phenomenal record, but we were too caught up in our own personal bullshit to put any effort into it. You can actually <laughs> hear the distance that had grown between us in our performance. If we hadn't managed to force two songs out of ourselves, the title track and Wild Side, the album would have been the end of our careers. In the studio, we were each mixing our drugs with something we had never combined them with before. Guilt, denial, and secrecy. <laughs> Now, you said you were out running with the wireless big headphones around the fields uh, yeah, to this album, huge right? huge cans. Yeah. And I was getting an adrenaline rush from it. It was pushing me on over those kilometres. Uh, and the battery went. Yeah. So I heard the first two tracks. So the second day I went out, <laughs> I've already listened to the first two tracks. I listened to the rest of the album. And it was disappointing. Very. <laughs> it's, it's ruined the album for it me is, now. Yeah. First day I was going, I was uh, like walking the wild side, fucking great news, girls, girls. And when it dancing on glass, I was like, oh, poor Nicky, yeah, he messed himself up. But then the headphones, bang, battery went, and I was like, it was, yeah, it was, <laughs> I was fucking buzzing off it. Yep. Then I went back and I started again from dancing on glass, and it's just, 
bad boy boogie. And I got legs were like concrete blocks. Uh-huh. And then Jesus, when I got to Jailhouse Rock, I nearly fell over into ditch. We'll come to the track by track later and we shall digest it fully. Well, we'll breeze through it. We'll breeze through it in about three minutes. Yeah. Tell me some facts, Adrian. I have to talk about facts. Fact. The band were originally going to call this album Entertainment or Death. The idea came from a tattoo Doc McGee, their manager at the time, had on his arm. But a week later, they changed it to Girls, Girls, Girls. Now, why? I have a question why? about this. Why? I watched The Dirt, the Netflix documentary. It was not really a documentary. It was a mockumentary. <laughs> So the manager comes in when they're uh, rehearsing and he, he's calling the album Entertainment or Death. I'm fully behind you guys. I've even got a tattooed on my arm. Oh, we're changing it to Girls, Girls, Girls. That would be a very risky move by any manager to come <laughs> in with a tattoo of an album that he'd like the band that he's managing to have on their next opus. And then they just go, no, you'd be going around riddled with stupid text all over your body. I digress from the facts. By the way, I just want to say that The Dirt wasn't that good. The principal roles of Motley Crue were acted by British actors and then Ozzy was acted by an American. Sacrilege. <laughs> Sacrilege. That's a, that's a good point. So you didn't like it? It's much like this album, Adrian. You have to be in the mood, I think, and very forgiving of certain aspects of that type of music. Just before you jump into your facts there, I have to read you this. There's a book called A History of Heavy Metal written by Andrew O'Neill. And he says, about Motley Crue, metal started on Sunset Boulevard, says Vince Neil of Motley Crue on a VH1 documentary, an actual documentary, a rockumentary. Glam metal is barely worthy of the name metal, says Andrew. The first band to make it in the scene were Motley Crue. Their antics have been documented in two compelling books, The Dirt and Nikki Six's The Heroin Diaries. Basically, they were really horrible and very unhygienic. There you go. He saved you reading two books. Motley Crue existed in order to indulge in sex, drugs and vandalism, and the musicianship was an afterthought. They took Glam Rock's image but ignored its genuinely great songwriting. And they stunk live. They were an embarrassment. They played awful, says one of their crew on the VH1 film. They were so bad that when their drummer, Tommy Lee, found out the show had been recorded, he started crying. (laughs) Now, if there's something positive to be said about Motley Crue, it's that they fucking went for it. They dreamed of being the ultimate rock and roll band with the ultimate rock and roll lifestyle. They got fucked up on drugs, threw insane parties, crashed cars and killed people. Shot guns, married porn stars and strippers, made millions, spent millions on drugs, flushed drugs down the toilet. They totally and comprehensively lived sex, drugs and rock and roll to its ultimate limit. It's just a shame that they sounded like absolute dog shit. Now that was Andrew Neil from his A History of Heavy Metal book. He doesn't like Motley Crue. I don't think so. Does he even like heavy metal? That basically summarises this podcast and we can all go home now. But let's delve well, into it a bit deeper, yeah? I have to talk about facts every single week. And it's a fact. It is a fact. Facts. So, for the album Girls, 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 the body shop was the venue for the listening party of the album. Vince Neil was so fond of the name, he's got a tattoo that says Girls, Girls, Girls. He also owned a strip club in Japan with the same name. Mm. Vince was the highbrow member of the group, I think. Well, he had a bit of a businessman. Maybe. Motley Crue got on the wrong side of religious and conservative groups with Shout at the Devil but this only boosted their popularity it was boosted again in 1985 when the Parents Music Resource Centre the PMRC put their song Bastard on a list of 15 offensive songs again this just gave the band more publicity made them seem even more edgy and metal and, and real 
PMRC, black sticker, white letters. Ah, brilliant, I'm buying it. The this kids went, oh, this must be really offensive inside. Yeah, in fact, Motley Crue used these stickers to their advantage also by releasing a limited edition X-rated version of the Girls, Girls, Girls single. It was basically the same song, but had a cover with a woman exposing her breasts. I thought you were going to say exposing her foof. No. I don't think they got away with that one now. Uh, I think Ted Nugent did that later. If you can't lick him, lick him, I think his album was called. Really? <laughs> she was up. exposing her <laughs> foof inside her boxing shorts. Young Michael remembers that one. I'd say so. Yeah, that was the kind of album covers that would appear in advertisements in Kerrang! magazine, of which I used to, on occasion when I would be at home sick in the bed, perch on the pillow in front of me. And I'm not sure how you... Well, I know how you masturbated as a young man, but I'm not sure how you, dear listener, masturbate if you're facing up to the ceiling and saying sorry, God, as you pull on the plum. But I used to bevel the the mattress uh, face down with the chin on the pillow, looking at these slightly sexy, suggestive covers of rock videos and album covers in Kerrang! magazine. One day I remember I was on my seventh wank. Because I was sick. Yeah, seventh. The whole day, I'd like, I started off with a rush of intensity in the early morning. And then by about midday, I was a bit strained and empty. But I had to get it out more. I was sick at home with flu. What else are you going to do when you're in the bed? Aged 14. And it was actually a cover of, I think, a Kiss video. And they had some ladies. Gene Simmons. (laughs) I was wanking off to his massive tongue. Is he really a man? I didn't realise. He's a hermaphrodite. I had the chin buried into the pillow. When I started, I was sweaty and hard because nothing was coming out. It was all spent before. But this was the seventh one and I had to get it done. And finally, after about five minutes of rubbing and pushing into the mattress, it just felt like sand coming up through my pipe. Then I exhaustedly lifted myself up to look. And beside my bed on the bedside locker was a steaming hot cup of tea that wasn't there when I started. (gasps) Uh Uh-oh. That's not apocryphal. That's a true story. Mm. It's one of those urban myths you always hear about the kids turning around and suddenly mum has left my hot cup of coffee and they didn't notice because they were too busy pleasuring themselves. But so, uh, you know, I wonder, uh, yeah, you're welcome. And I, I just, <laughs> I'm just curious if you have to be face down <laughs> to the pillow because otherwise then you would notice if someone came in through your bedroom door with a cup of tea and saying, Michael, would you like it? <gasps> <laughs> Don't look at me, mother. Fuck off. Get out. But in this case, I was too busy going, <coughs> and to the Kiss video cover. Nice story. Uh, I'm sure your local vicar will love this when they're listening back to the podcast. Facts. Motley Crue, drama surrounding them was often more interesting than what they put on record. A particular incident happened in December 1984 when Vince Neil was behind the wheel when a car crash killed his passenger Razzle the drummer for the band Hanoi Rocks Vince Neil was wasted and he swerved around a fire truck hit a spot in the road lost control and hit two oncoming cars going 65 miles per hour in a 25 miles per hour zone he was following Sammy Hagar he can't drive 55 that's what you get for listening to Sammy Hagar God. <laughs> So this is one of the things that colours your feeling on, on Motley Crue. <clears throat> it certainly coloured Hanoi Rock's feeling about Motley Crue, that's yeah. for sure. How do you see Vince Neil here? He, it's been documented. It's slightly different in the movie. 
at least how it's told is that it was far from being a dangerous situation. They were just tragically unlucky. Whereas the other guys, they had done much, much more dangerous things being wasted in their cars and they survived. Is Vince Neil a murderer or is it Razzle's fault partially for getting in the car with him? I wouldn't apportion blame to him. I wouldn't say, you're a murderer, Vince. No, that's a bit silly. Definitely not. He murdered our ears with his vocals. That was enough. You're a bit harsh on Vince today. <laughs> I don't think you've had breakfast. <laughs> I did. Um, no, I did. I did <laughs> have my oats and yoghurt. Facts. <laughs> During the recording of this album, mm. most of the band were suffering with issues relating to substance abuse. Mm-hmm. Nikki Seeks had a heroin addiction and Tommy Lee was also on drugs. An intervention on Seeks. Hang on a second. When we were teenagers, we called him Nikki Seeks for some reason. And I'm not yeah. sure why, because his name is Nikki Six. Uh, that has stuck. I still say it. We go all the way back to 1987. This is you all those years ago. Well, as this fucking Friday Rock show went out on the airwaves, rumours persistent. I remember I'm not true. Identity unspecified, but presumably Nikki Six was dead. More news as soon as we have it. You dance with the devil, your day will come to pay. Dancing on glass from Marty Cruz, Girls, 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 LP. Very sad. You went in the bad path. Things were so bad, the band staged an intervention on Six, who was the band's main creative source, writing the majority of the songs. Without him, there would be no album. He's cut back on his usage and used his experiences as the inspiration behind many of their songs, which we'll get to on track by track. Mick Mars, the guitarist, he said, When I was recording the staccato guitar line at the end of the song, Girls, 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 I fell out of the chair because I was so drunk, knocked out on the painkillers. We had sold millions of records and I was still broke. The rest of the guys were partying and spending all this money on drugs. But I was stuck with lawyers, accountants and greedy exes coming down on me for child support. Mick Barris, yes, who at the time of recording Girls, 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 as you mentioned, was taking pills because he was in constant pain. Mick Barris said, I first noticed it when I was 19. My hips started hurting so bad every time I turned my body that it felt like someone was igniting fireworks in my bones. I didn't have enough money to see a doctor, so I just kept hoping that I could do what I usually do, will it away through the power of my mind. But I kept on getting worse. And that was when I first heard the two words that would make me a freak and misfit for the rest of my life. Ankylosing spondylitis. It's a degenerative bone disease. It affects the joints and the ligaments that allow your spine to move. Mick Barris <gasps> from Ballygannon. Ankylosing spondylitis is a degenerative bone disease that I'm told is inherited, though I don't know of any relatives who have it. It usually affects the joints and ligaments that allow the spine to move. <laughs> <laughs> It is as if hot, quick-drying cement is growing on the inside of your spine, becoming so heavy over the years that it starts to pull you down, so it does. People think that I walk hunched over because I'm shy, but it's because my spine is fucked. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, Desi Nowlin. When the crew were on tour with Ozzy Osbourne, Osborne dared Nikki Six to urinate on the floor and lick it up. Six peed, but it was Ozzy who ended up drinking Six's urine. 
six p. Lovely. <laughs> Tommy Lee's partner at this time was famous actress Heather Locklear. Just a funny thing: how he actually met her, which is in the book. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's quite good. Right. He said, "I called her. My TV was on mute in the background, but as we made uncomfortable small talk." I saw her face appear on the screen in the Fall Guy. I took it as a sign that we were meant to be. Hey, turn on your TV! I told her you're on Channel Four. She flipped on her set. Uh, she informed me that's actually Heather Thomas. She said she played. She was jo- in the Fall Guy. She played nah. Jody Banks. I wanted to hang up right then, grab a gun, and shoot myself in the knob. God aligns everything perfectly for me, and I always manage to fuck it up. Actually, fact fans, Heather Locklear from Dynasty and TJ Hooker was in The Fall Guy for one episode. She was in an episode, yeah, I guess, there. He was technically correct. Which he could have come back with. Was she in it before or after Ah, this conversation took place? That's the thing. Facts. Nikki Six once tried to get off with Tommy Lee's (laughs) mum. There's tons of great stuff on the cruise. Mm. At the band's first performance at the LA club Starwood, a lad in the crowd spat a big hawker that landed on Neil's lovely white leather pants. <laughs> Neil immediately jumped off the stage and started boxing the head off him. <laughs> and Six joined in as well and he cracked his bass guitar off another lad's shoulder. Are you sure that Motley Crue did not come from the east coast of Ireland? <laughs> <laughs> Like something These that happened out at the sports complex. Fast. Nicky Six. Or even Nicky Six. Which one did I say that time? <laughs> For you, he's just Nicky Six. Oh, it's like when I was a kid, I used to say Chimley. Nicky Six overdosed on heroin, died and was brought back to life by a shot of adrenaline on December 23rd, 1987. The night this occurred, Nicky was partying hard with Slash and Stephen Adler of GNR and Robin Crosby of Rat. Slash's girlfriend at the time, a lady named Sally McLaughlin, helped save Six's life by giving him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation until the ambulance arrived at the scene. So after Six nearly died from the heroin overdose, the first thing he did when some fans gave him a lift home was have another shot of heroin. Yeah. Now luckily, some good came out of this as it inspired one of the band's most successful songs, Kickstart My Heart. Whoa, yeah. Oh yeah, indeed. Fast. Once, while off his face, Six peed on Cheap Trick guitarist Rick Nielsen's jacket. <laughs> Why? So just, for like, the, just for the crack. Dozens of facts about Motley Crue peeing and stuff. <laughs> they certainly um, were not afraid of taking the piss out of themselves. Another very famous incident that involved the crew was when uh, Tommy Lee's sex tape Mm. with Pamela Anderson came out. That was in 1995. And it would have been one of the first, and I would say finest examples of leaked celebrity sex tapes. In research for this program, I actually read Bobby Brown's (laughs) book, Dirty... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you still have the DVD of it? I was having my eighth wank of the day. (laughs) There's Tommy, with kind of the warty head on him. (laughs) I wanted to say that I read Dirty Rocker Boys by Bobby Brown Now Bobby Brown was in the Cherry Pie video from Warrant He was in New Edition This is a woman we're talking about Bobby B-O-B-B-I And it's not Frank Zappa's Bobby Brown who goes down He wasn't the one that beat up Whitney Houston No, this is a different Bobby Brown Bobby Brown She went down Ah, Mick Misogynistic Yeah, misogynizer I recommend reading the book she was married to Janie Lane, who was the lead singer of Warrant, and he killed himself. Facts. Right. <clears throat> How many facts have you got left? <laughs> There's so much good stuff. <laughs> 
It's a fantastic. These guys are just so interesting. Oh, that ghost of Barry Lang just came into the room. Fast. Now, Tommy, he also got to jail for a few months in 1998. He uh, kicked Pam Landerson. And she was holding their young son, Dylan, at the time. Good God. So I'm not sure. Are these lads nice people? Facts. Off his game on Charlie Charlie, Six unloaded a .357 Magnum at his bedroom door when the voices on the radio just wouldn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> Leave that, me alone. That just reminds stop shouting at me, Mammy. That's terrible, because when I was listening to Elton John's Sacrifice in 1990... It just made me pick up the broom handle and I started rifling it into my door. Poor Bon Scott got torn in two. It's no sacrifice at all. It's just what the voice did to me. It just drove no me mad. Sacrifice at all. My mother wouldn't let me go down to some party and she was worried that there'd be some bad influences on me. That's what I wanted all over me. Bad influences all over me everywhere. But I wasn't allowed to go down so I got into a big huff and then Elton John came on and that just put me over the edge altogether. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, mammy! It's a human sign when things go wrong. There's me beating Bon Scott's face. <laughs> and you're smashing the wall. <laughs> I think you arrived up uh, that weekend <laughs> No you, you weren't called To kind of intervene You, you came I up came, Look I've got Elton John's Greatest hits The next minute I attacked you with a broom <laughs> Get out Kerrang Quote Are you ready for a bit of Kerrang Adrian Kerrang Kerrang! Born in 1981, Britain's best-selling heavy metal magazine of the 1980s. It's made of kaolin, Adrian, which is white clay, known as white gold, mainly mined in Georgia. Kaolin fills the spaces between the fibres in paper to coat it smooth, you see. It contains elevated levels of uranium and thorium decay, <gasps> meaning your glossy Kerrang! magazine collection is literally radioactive. A truckload would trip a Geiger counter. Mm, me balls feel funny. <laughs> Krang hits its 100 not out on August the 8th, 1985 with Motley Crue on the cover and an interview promoting their third album, Theatre of Pain. The album was reviewed by Mick Fall three issues previous in issue 97. Uh, yeah, four good tracks, uh, half of them as dangerous as you get. Five on the weak side and one no good to man nor beast. Bit of an interlude album. Third albums are dodgy, he says. Ask Bon Jovi or Def Leppard or Metallica that, Mick. Howard Johnson, as Biff would call him from Saxon, speaks to guitarist Mick Mars on the phone. A job that Mick Mars would forever have to do for Motley Crue when he was always being interviewed by British UK magazines. Mick Mars was the man on the phone from the States. There's absolutely no way we're going to break up. Our hearts are in it too much and so we'll be round for a long time, yeah. I'll be rocking till I'm 90 said Mick. Theatre of Pain went on to sell 4 million copies in the US, yet for Kerrang! six months passed before the lads are heard in these pages again. Issue 113, February 16th, 1986. But it's another cover and interview job, with an umlaut overdose on the cover as bassist and band tyrant Nicky Six tongues a Jack Daniels bottle. The cover is more memorable, actually, for an inserted naked Ozzy Osbourne wiping his flog off the curtains. <laughs> Uh, Sylvia Simmons heads to Frankfurt to see the crew play live and chat to 27-year-old General Brigadier Nicky Six. Interestingly, when Kerrang! started, Sylvia wrote under the pseudonym Laura Canyon, a take on Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles, where rock stars uh, clustered. Why under a fake name? She wrote under her real name at Kerrang!'s birth mother, Sounds Newspaper. 
That's right. <laughs> okay. okay, then. Let me continue. Same person. Nikki Six says, It's sad because it's more self-destructive living the way we do now. Now we can afford to buy pounds of this drug and pounds of that drug and fucking bottles and bottles of this and just sit in the house. I have a recording studio in my house and I just sit there and get high and write music and whatever's inside of me comes out. And if you think about it, it's bad because I never go out of the house. The very next issue, 114. Paul Henderson sees Motley Crue at the Apollo in Manchester, UK. They're brash, sleazy, over-the-top, supremely arrogant, musically unoriginal, lyrically unimaginative, and at times grossly sexist. On the other hand, they've a stage show of undeniable quality. Who can take you out of Manchester or anywhere else for an hour or so into a world of fantasy? Motley Crue can. That's what it's all about. Kerrang! Issue 121 arrives on May the 29th, 1986, telling us Motley Crue drummer Tommy Lee is married to future Richie Sambora wife TV's Heather Locklear. Heather later went on to go absolutely mad, punching policemen, taking overdoses and ending up in a mental health facility. You'd have to have been mad to marry Tommy Lee. (laughs) (laughs) Four months later, it's Kerrang! 131, October 1986. The Motley lads are beginning work on their latest album with producer Tom Werman. The LP should be out on Electra or Neglectra, as Nikki Six calls them, early in 1987. In issue 135 in <clears throat> December, Stefan Shirazi tells us, Girls, 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 is the new sleaze pot of Motley material currently being concocted? He takes a call from band Uber Grumman Reichsmarschall, Nikki Six. Yeah, no. Readers of Kerrang! should know that this album is back near the basics of Motley Crew music. It's going to be raunchy, rocky, crew classic. You can describe the album in one word. Nasty, says Nicky. Nasty. And we'll find out later how nasty that actually was in track by track. Five months later, a nasty was upon us, Adrian. Kerrang, 146. Mm-hmm. On May the 14th, 1987, gives us an album ad and an album review by Malcolm Dome. This is a monster muty sensation. A Godzilla in glitter. A genius with sharp party molars. Girls is in this most selective categories. A record that will comfortably stand the test of time without gangrene and the grooves of fungus on the songs. The whole kit kicks off with a Gatling guitar gun riff from Mick Mars, who whose performance level, dexterity, range and flexibility throughout is a revelation that leaps onto the dance floor, muscles glaring and nostrils flaring. And then Tommy Lee picks up the baton with a mean dirty drum shudder that bleeds into the dynamic strut of wild side, setting the tone for the gloriously scheming cardinal thrusts of the title track. Vince Neil comes into his own on lead vocals, proving he can carry a number that requires more than barking at the closest trash can. Indeed, he reminds throughout of Naughty Holder brought up on Big Macs and tequila rather than pints of Newcastle Brown and fish and chips. That was Malcolm Dome's review of Girls, Girls, Girls. Get away with birds, did Malcolm. Issue 147 the following week has Motley Crue on the cover and an interview with Dante Benuto, the world's mightiest metal waffler, who waffles on about meeting Britt Eklund for six paragraphs before even getting to describe his attempt to interview Nikki Six for another eight paragraphs on his free jaunt to the States. And a few weeks later back at Kerrang HQ, he's on the phone to the bouffant big band leading bassist. Nikki tells him that he's not a one-dimensional personality and this album is the best record ever. He's a proud papa. Nikki says, I've given up drugs now and that's what the songs are about. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> Adrian, I'd see a doctor about that. Quote. 
I became a little too excessive in my habits, and I, it started to hurt the music. Adrian, you listening to me? I learned that drugs are only a temporary way of solving your problems. Eventually, you just have to face the facts. Though I don't claim to be a preacher or a teacher of any kind, I'm just another kid in the street, and I've made my statement on the album. Yep, Dante concurs. He didn't ever have a problem. You had the problem, says Dante. Now, according to Nikki Six's Heroin Diaries book, on May the 10th, 1987, around the time of these interviews that were taking place, he was one day coke and dope free. So that was on May one the 10th. One whole day. By the time this phone interview with Dante took place on May the 21st, Nikki was 12 days drug free, according to the book. He thus soberly says of journalists in the book at that time, they all ask identical questions as though they're the only person to have ever thought of them. I hate the press almost as much as they hate me. Sorry, Dante. He's not your friend. No. Back to Nicky's claim he'd given up the drugs, because that's what he said on the phone to Dante. By day 13 of sobriety, he realizes he doesn't know where Vince or Mick live. By day 15, he realizes he's just a megalomaniacal twat. By day 16, he didn't make it to day 16. Back on the beer by the end of May, back on the coke by the start of June, back on the dope by the end of the month. Saying his friend Slash's band aren't worth free tickets to a Motley show and their singer is an asshole. Go on the 6-6-R. He was calling like it was. Three months later, we draw our Kerrang! review to a close. It's issue 152 on August the 6th, 1987, with a picture of the so-called Lady Killers. Two ladies dubbed Nicky's Bad Habits, including Vanity, who in his book Mr. Six describes as trouble, and that he really needs to learn to say no to her because she will 1. Embarrass him, 2. Be a bitch, 3. Be over-hyper, 4. Complain, 5. Get high, 6. Stumble around drunk. I mean, he says, isn't that my fucking job? I'd rather sleep with the grandma room service lady. Interestingly, Vanity, a former Prince Pop protege and Nicky Pogo Pipe plunger, later went on to become an evangelist. Repent ye sinners! Didn't know No? And that's it for our tour of Motley Crue's time appearing in the pages of only 10 Kerrangs in two years. Must be that uranium kaolin clay. They weren't homegrown enough, you see. That's right. Yeah, they weren't Def Leppard. Yeah, they probably weren't as, as accessible as the British bands. And they didn't need to be, really. They were shifting units. I mean, what were the sales of their first few albums? About nearly four million each. I don't think they were ever huge in the UK. Girls, girls, girls. 60,000 copies sold. Tommy Tighe wouldn't mean returning on that, would he? No. The famous Tommy Tighe, the runner of the Sound, Sound Cellar in Dublin, where we used to go when we were young lads in 1987 on the train from our little village on the east coast of Ireland up to the big capital city. And we had £20 in our pockets each. And we had to choose what we were going to do with that money for the day. Would we go to the cinema, Eat. go for a burger, or buy a cassette or two in Tommy Tighe's Sound Cellar? An overpriced import cassette at that. Where Tommy Tough would choices. recommend the latest album by Mind Funk. Or Babes in Toyland to get you to buy absolute rubbish. <laughs> so, shall we tackle the album? Track by track! Kicks off with track one, Wildside. Nikki Six had said if they hadn't got those two songs that were good out of themselves, it could have been game over for Motley Crue. This is High Energy Opener. Kicks off with Mick Mars' best and catchiest riff on the album. It was inspired by the band's lives in Los Angeles and the downsides they experienced on the Sunset Strip. It was also a rally song to those who lived life on the wild side. Now, I like the lyrics on this. 
There's a great lyric when he says he's walking around with his crucifix stuffed into his jeans under his death list. And that reminds me of the scourge. (laughs) (laughs) I was subconsciously influenced. Adrian wrote a great script called The Scourge and it's coming out on a podcast platform near you soon. It's a story much like the lyrics in this song. I think the lyrics on this, they kind of conjure up images of the mean streets of LA and the back alleys and the crack dealers, the hookers, and then the rather unpleasant life. And I like to go on about the starts of albums, that they should hit you in the face or they should have some grand big opening. And I know a lot of albums at that time had organ intros like Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet. And then this just hits you straight with the riff right in. Boom. And it's great. Panned really nicely by Tom Worman. He's done that millisecond split left channel, right channel. And it makes the guitar sound huge. And he's made them much sharper and crunchier than on Theatre of Pain. So it really sounds like it's a fresh album. And those two songs still sound fresh. They do indeed. In The Heroin Diaries, Nikki Six's book, he explains how the song came to be. And claims that he was seeing a Catholic schoolgirl at the time. One day and one day asked her to, to recite the Lord's the Prayer. Prayer. He, he thought, thought it sounded, it sounded cool, cool, so he so messed with it, it and then came Wildside. You had the you had oh, that quote? Uh, my research is the same as your research. We should <laughs> we should have discussed research. One of the lyrics is forward my mail to me in hell. This would be rehashed later when they reformed the Vince Neil for the Saints of Los Angeles album that only shifted 40,000 <laughs> in 2008. But it's that idea, you know, they are these lords of the underground or lords of diminishing return, as we'll see in this the rest of the album. But this packs a nice punch. It gives you the dirt under the fingernails, much like Guns N' Roses did with Welcome to the Jungle. You're invited into the sleazy center of L.A. at midnight. From our perspective, where we we were living on the little village on the east coast of Ireland, well sheltered from this kind of stuff. Well, again, I go back to saying, you know, at closing time in our little village, uh, there was a bit of the wild side (laughs) about it. There were lads coming in with like Ben Sherman slip on shoes, launching kicks into each other, driving lads heads into little Fiat Unos. You know, they had like cow dung on their slip ons. So Rathdrum at closing time was the wild side. You just walk down the street, there'd be lads flying out the windows of bars. You could hear the, the sirens in the background. Look to one side, and there was girls in really short skirts doing illicit things down the alleyways. Stop making the show you. Very same as LA. Very <laughs> Absolutely. Same as LA. We, we could actually relate to this. That's why we identified with this, I think. <laughs> we wouldn't leave the house after 11, right? <laughs> Because we'd be going into the wild side. I remember with some of these bruisers, these guys that used to come up, spill out of the five pubs on the square of our little town (laughs) and then just launch kicks and spits into each other. Because of licensing laws in Ireland at the time, all the pubs closed at half past 11 during the summer. So it meant everybody came out onto the square wasted and all the rival pubs inhabitants came and had to meet each other before they got into their cars and drove drunk home. (laughs) And there was a lot of bloodery in the square, I can say. We used to sit there and watch it. It It's entertainment. But once I do remember being caught up in it a little bit and a man lifted me up by the back of the neck by my long hair and grabbed me by the balls and then threw me onto the roof of a car just because I called him duck arse. Not even a very strong epithet. He was probably a little bit sensitive about it and I think you should have been a bit more sensitive in your dealings with duck arse. These days we would have gone in for counselling and everything. It was all solved in a minute when he launched me onto the top of the car and I burst out laughing and he couldn't believe it. Look, he did murder you. (laughs) Our Father, who ain't in heaven, be thy name on the wild side. Great song. Good song, good riff, sleazy feel to it. 
Saves I the like album. Saves the album. So they were definitely saviors of this opus. As Nikki said, they only had two songs. Of and, which, uh, the next one. The second of which is track two. Girls, girls, girls. This is credited to Six Lee and Mick Mars. And it was in fact the first single released from the album way back on May the 11th, 1987. It had a B-side of something for nothing. I love that song. And reached the heady heights of number 26 on the UK Top 40 and number 12 on the Billboard US Hot 100. In fact, I remember that would have been the time when I would have been listening to the UK Top 40 religiously every Sunday. I remember being thrilled and probably telling you, hey, Motley Crue's in the charge. Yeah, was that the start of one of their Harley motorcycles being revved up? Was the cue to know, yes, metal was in the charts. <laughs> Stuff we like is yeah. being accepted in the United Kingdom charts. Motley Crue were big into motorbikes at the time and owned Harley Davidsons, which our producer friend Tom Worman recorded as the intro to this track. And it sounded really cool. It did, to us at least, yeah. Because all we could see were Honda 50s going down outside our windows in our houses. So <laughs> just to see a big kind of low riding, nasty Harley sound. Whoa. And these are the, the bikes that are featured on the cover of the Girls, Girls, Girls album. Now the song itself mentions seven strip clubs. I counted them as well, yeah. the result of a lot of research by the band. Yeah. So let's go through them. Dollhouse, Fort Lauderdale in Florida. Tattle Tales in Atlanta, Georgia. Seventh Vale, Sunset Strip. Tropicana, Sunset Strip, Crazy Horse, Paris, France, on the George V Avenue, The Body Shop on the Sunset Strip, Marble Arch in Vancouver in British Columbia, Canada. I'd like to visit them all. I believe most of them are still open. In fact, I think Tattletales is open since 1976. That's a lot of crusty velvet. <laughs> so, uh, Girls, 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 basically a fun party song. Kicks off with the lyrics, Friday night and I need a fight. And this line is almost identical to the first line in Sweets, Sweet F.A. Yeah. Because Nikki Six was apparently a huge fan of the Sweet. Nikki Six. And also Nikki Six was too. Yes, and his uh, replacement. You see, maybe when he had the overdose and died, yeah. he was replaced by And that Nikki imposter, Seeks. yeah, took on a slightly differently sounding syllable. Mm. Just to mark the difference subtly. Do you know what I think it is? It's 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 a two X's that throws you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like the mind trying to make. But sense that's of not the rule of English grammar, Adrian. If no. you have a vowel followed by a consonant, the next vowel coming would stretch the first vowel longer. Oh, yeah. But oh. the two consonants would shorten the vowel preceding it. Yeah. Just, that's great, just, yeah. just to tell you that oh, now. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks for that. That'll be twenty-five uh, euro. <laughs> <laughs> The video was shot at the Seventh Vale and directed by Wayne Oisham. A god. This was a bit of a saucy video with loads of strippers in it. Oh. And obviously MTV loved it. Yeah, the only strippers that we ever knew at that time in our little town were the things that would take the paint off the wall that you'd buy paint in the local strippers. shop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, I'm here all night. Try the feel. <laughs> Nikki Six did once try to explain the really deep meaning of Girls, Girls, Girls. <laughs> did he? I've heard people say this song is about economic disparity. That it's an allegory for the love a parent has for their child. And even that it's a secret satanic code. But the truth is that it's about a very attractive woman with whom we wanted to have sexual relations. I know people might not buy that given the intricacies of the words, but it's true. When you do an American accent, you sort of go down to the deep south. Maybe that's where my roots lie. Track it, Adrian, track it. Track three, Dancing on Glass. 
Vidant spells this one out as ever in his powerful nasal snarl. This is where the riffs have dried up. So we're into track three and already it's very generic. Down, 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 down. Winding little riff by Mick. He won't go down in the pantheon of great rock guitars. He was solid. His spine was fused solid. <laughs> solid like concrete. The story behind this one. A very famous celebrity drug counsellor at the time, Bob Timmons, helped Nicky kick his heroin without going into rehab. We drove back to my house and threw away all the needles and the spoons and, and the drug residue, he tells us, in the dirt. That night, I wrote Dancing on Glass. <laughs> From my veranda in New Orleans, <laughs> watching the slave plantation take shape. Oh Lord, he pick a bale of cotton. Jump up, oh, turn around. Pick a bell day. That's like when we used to pick potatoes on the Farrer's Fields. That's what we'd be singing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not getting into that stuff. <laughs> That's for the next um, episode. The song features the immortal line. Valentine's in London found me in the trash. Vince Neil woke up in a rubbish bin with needles hanging out of his arm. He'd gone to a drug dealer because he hadn't had a fix in days. When he finally got his fix, he went into convulsions and spasms, started frothing at the mouth. So his drug dealer started hitting him with a baseball bat (laughs) (laughs) to snap him out of it. Didn't work. So Mm. uh, the dealer put him in his skip and left him to die, basically. (laughs) Silver spoon and needle, witchy tombstone smile. I'm no puppet. I engrave my veins with style. Axel Rose-ish type of lyric there for Mr. Brownstone, I think. Six got something good out of his addiction. He got he got that tune. And it ends with a great gig in the sky-esque vocal performance by a powerful lunged lady. Mm-hmm. And she sings, Sweet Shiva, You Are My Jesus. And what is that referring to? Well, when I read that first on the lyric sheet of the album, in the cassette and by the way it was a very very poorly made cassette inlay cover because it only had like two pages and all the lyrics are really small font and so when i was trying to read the lyrics here it says sweet shiva you were my jesus but because it's on the fold i thought it was sweet shivu and when i had a research of what shivu meant i thought it was a nod to christian shivu the romanian footballer but he was only about eight at the time but then shivu is a town in zimbabwe and actually it's an afrikaans name meaning lone thorn or prick so nikki six right up the street but then actually when I looked at the lyrics online on the internet it says sweet Shiva with an A not a U and Shiva is actually Mexican black tar heroin or a goat that would make more sense I don't know sweet goat you were my Jesus your first theory was was very deep and I was surprised that Six had got that deep on it dancing on this we'll move on to track four bad boy boogie bad is bad bad. This is a bluesy one. And this is just smoking in the boys' room rehashed, isn't it? Smoking in the boys' room. And smoking in the boys' room was wasn't their song, so they just copied their own version of it and published it on Girls, Girls, Girls. And it's mm-hmm. rubbish. Strangely, in my notes here, out of nowhere, Tommy Lee claims that during phone interviews on the Girls, Girls, Girls tour, he'd sometimes pee on the bedroom floor or puke. <laughs> Why not? That's nothing to do with Bad Boy Boogie. Like your friend Busher. Every time you go around to his house, he'd take his cock out in front of you for some reason. He was just happy to see you. It's like a little dog. <laughs> Got excited when he'd call around. He'd start running around laps and his little langer hanging out. Wagging his little tail. Hey, woo! I have written here, Vince Neil fingers you all song long, it seems. 
Because the lyrics are basically about Vince Neil trying to cop off its really young ladies. Yeah, nothing really deep here. No. <laughs> well, ask Neil, I think, as deep as he wanted to get in. Uh, I don't think he got as deep as Tommy Lee now. No, judging by... <laughs> oh, no, I think Vince was a little bit caught short. <laughs> I didn't study him that hard now. Little stubby fella. <laughs> Steve Dobson from Saxon, he has all the Polaroids for evidence because they were on tour together. We were looking at them and Vince Neils were a little stubbly one. I were at Tommy Lee. Was it like a hammer? Track five. No, no. Very short, this song. One minute and 27 seconds. The song is about Nikki's grandma, Nona, who sadly passed away. Unfortunately, Nikki was so off his face on the heroin, he didn't even turn up at the funeral. And this ended side A, I think, of the album. <laughs> and it kind of put you to I sleep. I go into a sad story and you're talking about the tape. Ended. <laughs> <laughs> because she, so I tell you, she might have passed one. away, but I passed out when this song came on. <laughs> Do you know what? Nicky didn't even cry when he found out she died. Mm. He was that messed up. Yeah. It's not a song. It's just one sentence repeated <laughs> ad nauseum. It's basically, we're all messed up. We've only enough material for about eight songs if we're lucky. Yeah, we have to do, what, a <laughs> minimum 38 minutes and the album comes in at 40 minutes and it's 20 minutes per side. So they had to kind of tack on something just to fill in the last two minutes of side A. That does end side one and moves on to side two, which starts with track six, Five Years Dead. And tell me this, Adrian, because you're the man in the know. What does Five Years Dead mean? Uh, I believe it was inspired by the 1937 novel now, by Bernard Falk. Spurious <laughs> nonsense from the internet in your research there, Adrian. That is just cack. I think it was on Wikipedia. What is that book about? What's the content? You can't find anything no, about it no on the information. It doesn't exist. Exactly. And then there's a review. There's a single review on Amazon. There's no description of the book on Amazon, but the review says this. It's not as long as it looks. Pretty good book. Boring at first, but it gets kind of interesting. That's a review on Amazon. Bit of a poppy chorus on this. Five years dead. Five years of repeated. repeated. There's the same harmony of girls, 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 girls. Go up mm -hmm. the scale, go down the scale. Make the riff, fall down, do a line of coke. Inject yourself, try again. It is, it is basically girls, girls, girls reworked. Filler. Five years dead. Girls, girls, girls. Not much more for me to add on that one. Take the rifle yes, out and shoot something. that calf we'll between the eyes, Adrian. It's done. Track seven. All in the name of. And this one is a glum rock. Yeah. Glum it's rock. A whole new genre I've just invented. <laughs> glum <laughs> rock and roll. This is a glam rock style track. About Nikki's affection for Tracy Lords. Oh. Do you know who Tracy Lords was, Michael? Was she a porn star? She was indeed. And when she started making those movies, she was only 15 years of age. And the lyrics say, mm. she's only 15. She's the reason, the reason that I can't sleep. You say illegal. Yes. I say, legal's never been my scene. I try like hell, but I'm out of control. I'm on my seventh wank and I'm spraying the walls. If it is about her, that's really good. If it's not about her and it's just about getting off a of 15 year olds, we're in another <laughs> dodgy characteristic of Motley Crue to go with murderers and, and possible paedophiles. Pretty innocent. She says you ain't seen nothing yet. Brings me a dirty, dirty magazine. There she was for all the world to see. Oh yeah, her foof on display. It's funny, you like this album and there's lots of themes of addiction on it. You know, porn is also an addiction. Well, listen, I had more of a business <laughs> sense about me in those days. When I brought all that porn back, I sold it on the streets of our little hometown. 
So you were a dealer. Okay. It's, it's not a pretty picture you're painting here. <laughs> not pretty at all. We were only, what? Well, I was about, what, 18, 19 at that time. I was old enough Moving to go on. to the joy, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> a lad like you with the long hair would have been very popular in the joy. You'd have been face down then, all right. But you would have been pleasuring yourself. <laughs> track it, Adrian, track it. Track eight. Something for nothing. This is credited to Six and Neil. Vince is either a gigolo or he's engaging with hookers. I'm not sure which. Did it matter at the time? No. I love the intro to this mm. song. I just love the riff. I heard it on the Friday Rock Show, which is coming up later. And I instantly liked it. I just particularly like the lyric. Something for nothing. Yeah, target practice in the dark. That's the uh, phrase, yeah, <laughs> when he has a really heavy arc. That was cool. In and out is never free. Did he say that? I have to get the lyrics out. Something. Might as well talk about the lyrics. <laughs> yeah, to see something here. for nothing. Well, in and out, it's never free. Something for nothing. Leave the money where it's easy easy to see. Oh, is yeah, that the was story? Was money for him or was he giving the money away? Leave the money on the mantelpiece as the prostitute is washing her foof upstairs as you you have to leave the house. As me? Foolish bride, call me up, the scratcher rich rich old man got the needle slipped and dropped the stitch and that was Mick Morris signature you know slide down the fretboard to sound like another Harley departing into the distance not only the sound of Mick Morris sliding down the fretboard but also when the Honda 50 went down the street when I was trying to listen to the Friday Rock Show from the BBC the interference was rattling through the waves like a wasp trapped in a jam jar for a treat, gave it free. Happy 63. Crazy days, easy money. I was just 16. Easy money for such a good deed. Nikki was banging a 63-year-old. Now that brings me to another story of my past, which I don't think we have time for today. You can't leave us hanging like that. <laughs> Can? Yes, I will. <laughs> right. Track nine. We're nearly at the finish line yep. here on Motley Crue's Girls, Girls, Girls. And this one is The Big Ballad. You're all I need. This song reached number 83 on the Hot 100 and 23 on the UK singles chart in 1988. Because this song is about a dude who kills his girlfriend yeah. just to stop her breaking up with him. Now, Six tells us in his Heroin Diaries, you, you, you've probably seen this as you've read the book, You're All I Need was inspired by his real-life violent impulses because he was convinced that his girlfriend at the time was doing the dirt on him with an actor called Jack Wagner. Now Jack, at the time, was having 15 minutes of fame with a hit single All I Need you can see there was a, there's a twist ah. on it you know, Six did his own song and played it to her it'd just be like something you do <laughs> I feel like yeah, I took the cassette over to her apartment and I didn't say anything. I just had a little cassette player and I just played it for her. <laughs> and she started crying. And I walked out the door. I was like, well, that's that, man. However, the band loved it. And it was recorded for the Girls, Girls, Girls album. Your old mate, John Bon Jovi, praised this song. In fact, he went as far as to say, this is the best ballad Motley Crue have ever written. Hang on a second. Nicky thought this was hilarious. Speaking about Bon Jovi and Nicky Six, going back to that Andrew O'Neill book, A History of Heavy Metal, he says this, everything you need to know about Bon Jovi can be summed up in the simple and revealing fact that John Bon Jovi has a Superman tattoo. Even Nicky Six thought Bon Jovi were lame. From the Heroin Diaries, Nicky says, I always dug John, I just hated his band's music. It was the opposite of everything I loved and believed in. Unfortunately, John did not reciprocate and actually did like some of Motley's songs. John's a good guy. Infuriatingly, yeah? <laughs> He's a good Christian. He will turn the other cheek. 
And that brings us to the rip-roaring conclusion of Girls, Girls, Girls. They finish with a cover, a live cover in fact, of Jailhouse Rock, the famous Elvis Presley song. I never listened to this song of the album. Even now when I was listening to this album again <laughs> for this show, after You're All I Need Faded Out, I just stopped it. No interest in that. Everybody in the wholesale block, dance to the Jailhouse Rock. So yeah. to kind of speed it up a little bit in comparison to the original, you haven't listened to it much, but if you listen to it, the production values wouldn't be great. Uh, for this song? Yeah, as a live recording I don't know I haven't listened to it probably in uh, 35 years it doesn't sound like it was recorded in front of a big arena perhaps uh, the sports complex it's like Judas Priest unleashed in the studio they just recorded their songs again and put a laugh track behind it so to speak yeah. so they just put the audience in the background it's not live after Theatre of Pain they had the Brownsville Station song Smoking in the Boys Room and that became one of the big hits so they thought oh let's put on another cover of an old song this time because we're in a blues rocky kind of vibe here on this album and we're wasted completely let's do Elvis mm. bad choice bad end to the album this one is very divisive some people like it do you like it? I'm quite ambivalent towards it yeah I'll ambivalent that's a good word kind of flows off the tongue like abominable ambivalent <laughs> abominable catastrophically abominable you're gonna fart now are you <laughs> <laughs> I think I crashed your fart. You crashed my good <laughs> fart. Oh. I think the next one you're going to be pushing cloth. <coughs> Jesus. Throw the underpants in the bin. I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> Went down for a piss and sharted myself. So then I had to take the underpants off and put them in the toilet bin and then go commando back upstairs. <laughs> And then the girlfriend was talking to some other person and I said, we're going. Why? We're going. Come on. <laughs> you lived the life of a rock and roll reprobate. Some days were just like that. And this morning I think I woke up the neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> Went to the toilet. Boom. <laughs> Cracked the porcelain. Cracked. <laughs> Someone who's looking out to the sunshine thinking, there's a thunderstorm. Mostalgia. This is Mostalgia. Albums that we love. Albums that were very important to us when we were growing up. I want you to slide now into the halcyon days of rock radio across the British Isles. Neither the UK nor Ireland cared to cater their national airwaves to the scene. A population of 60 million starved of long, medium or shortwave rocking. One man only was chosen to be thrown a couple of hours a week of FM and medium wave on BBC Radio 1. That man was the trombone tonsil troubadour himself. Tommy Vance, the Friday launcher. Tommy Vance. From aged 38 to 53, he sat, smoked Rothmans, drank Guinness and played rock and heavy metal to the masses across Britain. And if you were lucky with the wind, the east coast of Ireland. Molly Crew shat up his wall on the 22nd of January 1982. Three years into his Friday Rock Show tenure, up until the release of the Girls, Girls, Girls album in 1987, these five years on the Friday Rock Show yielded 15 Motley Crew plays and one in-concert recording. Here then is the five years shrunken down into two minutes. Listen out for Kerrang! editor Jeff Barton and DJ Pete Drummond guest hosting when Tommy was on his holiday. And Knickers! And now, Motley Crew. Now that's a band I'd never heard of before until I got an album through the post from John Watson who attends Durham School in Durham. The name of the band is Motley Crew, M-O-T-L-E-Y, one word, and then Crew spelt C-R-U-E. The album is called Too Fast for Love. 
before that something from Motley Crue, the album that's out on the American label called Leather. The track was called Public Enemy Number One. The album's called Too Fast for Love. Motley Crue there and a track from their debut album Too Fast for Love. That was from their Electra version of, uh, of that particular album, remixed by Roy Thomas Baker. Why to that Motley Crue, their latest single Looks That Kill. The album's out on Electra. It's by Motley Crue. The album is called Too Fast for Love. They were singing their piece of your action. The band who did really well at Donington this year. First on the bill, they were to the best of my recollection. Motley Crue, a new entry this week at number 16 into our charts. Before that, you heard Motley Crue. The track was called Red Hot. Before Hawkwind, you heard Motley Crue from their latest album. It's out on Electra. The album is Theatre of Pain. The track was called Keep Your Eye on the Money. Motley Crew from their album Theatre of Pain, Home Sweet Home. From the CD Theatre of Pain, you heard Motley Crew smoking in the boys' room. Nine minutes after ten. We're going to give away five signed albums by Motley Crew to the first five correct answers to be drawn out next Friday morning. And, of course, Tommy, who will be back on Friday, will be giving you the winners then. And let's hope it's you. I have three pairs of Motley Crue knickers, three signed LPs, American copies, and three posters as well, so three people can win. One pair of knickers, one signed LP, and one poster. These knickers that I have in my hand, do you see them? Knickers! That's the only time in my whole career I've been able to say it on the air. Knickers! I'm giving some away. That's why I can say it. Honest. I've got three pairs of knickers here, and I must say they're very comfortable. Okay, first track we played was... Motley Crue, Ten Seconds to Love. And that was from Shout of the Devil, came out in 1983. Why did you choose the tracks? Well, I chose Motley Crue's because I think Vince Neil's got a really sexy voice. Ooh, and she must have been deaf. That was Motley Crue's first five years of plays on the Friday Rock Show on BBC Radio 1 in the UK. Interestingly, Tommy and producer Tony Wilson had to buy then controller of the BBC Radio 2, Bryant Marriott, a String Fellows Gentlemen's Club membership, just to borrow their FM transmitter each week to broadcast the show in high fidelity. Bring on the girls, Bryant! In silicon stuffed stereo! On the 8th of May, The Wild Side came to the Friday Rock Show in 1987. The first menstruation from Girls, Girls, Girls. 16 plays from the album over the next two years before album number five, Dr. Feelgood, plopped out. Here they are in two and a half minutes. Tommy's aching for Guinness and perturbed at Motley Crue cancelling their European tour. 12 and a half minutes past 10, the Friday Rock Show, the music is here. Motley Crue before that, one of the best albums I've heard in, well, a long time. I play it all the time in my motor. Motley Crue's album is available now on the Electra record label. Sounds like a commercial, I know. It is called Girls, Girls, Girls. And the track I played you was called Something for Nothing. Very highly recommended. At the risk of being boring, let me say once again, the album is really exceptional. It makes excellent listening. I love it. Motley Crue is out on CD. You heard it from that wonderful piece of modern technology the CD. Girls, Girls, Girls is the album title. That's also the title of this single as well. The track we played for you was called Something for Nothing by Motley Crue from the Electra album. It's now seven and a half minutes to eleven. The music continues with Motley Crue when they can start their bike. Motley Crue did Girls, Girls, Girls and this is our lot tonight. I've got the new single by Motley Crue. Here it is. The new single there from Motley Crue, which is called Girls, Girls, Girls. And here on the Friday Rock Show, we're chatting to Rick Allen, Rick Savage and Joe Elliott of, uh, of Def Leppard. But we're in Ireland. We're not there with you in the United Kingdom, though you're hearing us on Radio 1. We're actually in Dublin's Fair City. I haven't even had a pint of Guinness. 
And I have to tell you that the pubs do not close as early in this country as they do in the UK. They so don't close. Well, that's right. as as <laughs> and here's a single that cracked it. Before that motley crew, who are shortly going to tour in this country. Lots of disappointed people kicking around the United Kingdom and indeed throughout the rest of Europe with regard to motley crew because they've cancelled the whole of their European tour. Don't ask me why I have the faintest idea. The news about them goes like this. They're just about to start recording a new album or they're going to start recording the album in two months' time. We're not quite sure. The news got garbled all the way from the United States of America. As soon as they've got the new album put together and they release it, then they'll do a tour. So they are definitely going to come to Europe during 1988. Motley Crew. So many different stories kicking around about the cancellation of their European tour. Don't know which one to believe. Motley Crew, the single called You're All I Need from the album Girls, Girls, Girls. It was a shame they cancelled their tour. I was looking forward to seeing them. So were a multitude of people in this country and on the continent of Europe as well who had bought tickets, but then the whole thing was cancelled. It is said that they will be touring sometime this year. Hope they do, and I indeed hope they're healthy as well. He hopes they're healthy. I wonder why he would say that. Let's go straight to guitarist Mick Mars inside the Dirt Book to tell us what actually happened to that tour. Our manager Rich was shit-faced high and crying when he broke the news to me. He asked me to call England and cancel the European leg of the tour with him. Why me? I was hungover, confused, wet and mad. I called Kerrang! magazine and said the first thing that came to my head. Uh, we can't come over because we heard you had severe storms over there and uh, we have so much equipment that we're afraid that you know it could cause a cave-in. Because, uh, there's snow on the roof or something. I didn't know what I was talking about. All I knew was that I couldn't tell him that, them, what Rich had really told me. Nicky was dead. <gasps> Nicky was dead? Let's go straight to bassist Nicky Six inside his heroine diaries book for the answer. Picked up Slash, his girlfriend Sally, Stephen Adler and Robin, and went to the cat house. Lots of coke, alcohol, pills. I don't remember much. At some point, the usual blackouts. Then we went back to Slash's hotel to get some junk. I was too wasted, and I let this cat shoot me up. I turned blue on the spot. That's what they tell me. Slash was there? Let's go straight to Guns N' Roses' Slash guitarist, also trapped inside Nicky's Heroin Diaries book. And then paramedics were there, but I was so drunk I passed out. When I came around, the first thing I noticed was that for some reason I had destroyed the fucking bathroom. Sally was freaking out at the influx of people in white uniforms taking Nicky away. Tommy Vance would not have been pleased that the tour was cancelled due to Nicky Six overdosing and dying for a few minutes. Better off dead, he'd say. Harsh, we'll leave the Friday Rock Show now and leave the last word on this to the still alive Nicky, waking up after being dead on Christmas Eve, 1987. Well, I came to in a hospital bed. There was a cop asking me questions. I told him to go fuck himself. I ripped out my tubes and staggered in just my leather pants into the parking lot where two teenage girls were sitting crying around a candle. They had heard on the radio that I was dead and looked kind of surprised to see me. <laughs> the, the girls had this pissy <laughs> The girls had this pissy little Mazda and gave me a lift home as we listened to my obituary on the radio. One of them gave me her jacket and they made me promise to never do drugs again. Karen opened the door to me. I went straight to my answering machine and changed my message so it said, Hey, it's Nikki. I'm not here because I'm dead. <laughs> as soon as Karen had left for work, I went straight to my bedroom, shot up and passed out. Nikki seeks there. When you dance with the devil in the pale of the moonlight. He's just a bit of a prick. <laughs> If you're listening to this, Nikki, you're all right with me. And that brings us to the end of another Moshtalgia.
when we look back with great affection and maybe a slightly different perspective at Motley Crue's Girls, Girls, Girls. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I think we unsheathed the gimlet eye there and gave Motley Crue a good seeing too. In 1987, it was a wonderful fresh sound on the radio, as was heard on the Friday Rock Show, and that track, Something For Nothing, that was when I first heard it, and first heard Motley Crue. That's why I like that song still. Then when you heard the next single, Wild Side, then Girls, 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 it just seemed to be better and better. We went out and bought the album, or possibly stole it, don't remember which. Yeah, so 1987, some great albums that we had in our cassette collections and we're all taping off each other, recording our versions of the Friday Rock Show and playing these songs and love them, love them. So there's that nostalgia about it that draws us to this album, I think. Even though now that we listen to it in the cold, harsh light of middle-aged decrepitude, still has a bit of a tinge, it still draws you back. Effluent of history is still there gargling in your throat. A solid, fun album for me. A little place in my heart with the nostalgia. It's really great. (laughs) Please sponsor our show. We promise we will say nothing bad against the crew. Girls, 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 the album. A bit of fun from a band who were more interesting off the stage than on the stage. Tragedies, dramas, all the good stuff that makes podcasts like this thrive. From us Motley 2 to that Motley crew, that is nostalgia. Save the recording. What? Oh, fuck. I didn't press record. (laughs) 